Wedged between the Volga River and the Caspian Sea lies an expanse of sparsely populated land. It's here, along the edge of the former Russian frontier, that a unique ethnic enclave has called home for some four centuries. The natural environment of this region is largely characterized by dry, arid steppe. To the average person, such surroundings wouldn't seem conducive for human habitation or settlement, but it's an environment that said enclave know well, and have known and navigated its nomads for several generations. But there's far more to these unsuspecting folk than meets the eye, including a proud heritage that changed the world forever. I'm Chester Sakamoto, your host, and today we'll be taking a comprehensive look at the Kalmyks, a rich and fascinating culture in the heart of European Russia, right here on the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. It's a brisk, early spring day in the city of Elista, capital of the Republic of Kalmykia in southern Russia. Home to some 103,000 people, it's by no means Russia's largest, or smallest for that matter, urban area. But as we'll soon see, it's quite unique. A collection of Soviet-era edifices betrays any hint of what lies just beneath the surface. A cold wind sweeps down from the steppe, causing flags and banners to whip and snap, including the Lungta, prayer flags at the Burkan Bakshin Altan Sume, Golden Temple of Buddha Shakyamuni. It's the cultural and spiritual center of the Kalmyk community, and boasts having the largest Buddhist statue in Europe, 63 meters, or 206.7 feet. The sound of chanted mantras reaches your ears through the open doors. It's a seemingly foreign and unusual sound to be heard in Europe, but it's by no means new to the region. But how did Buddhism, the largest Buddhist enclave in the continent for that matter, end up so far west? The origins of the Kalmyks are fascinating, to say the least. Tracing their lineage back to the Four Oidat, an offshoot of the Mongol Empire when it fell in 1368, these Western Mongols were based primarily in parts of present-day northwestern China, southern Russia, western Kazakhstan, and eastern Mongolia. They formed a loose confederation of four tribes, the Choros, the Durbet, the Koshut, and the Torgut, that proved to be a formidable foe against Ming Dynasty and later Qing Dynasty China. The four Oidat were also, incidentally, the largest lasting as well as the last vestige of the Mongol Empire to survive, finally submitting to Qing Dynasty rule in 1757. At that time, the confederation disbanded, and while the Choros and the Koshut decided to remain in parts of their ancestral homeland in northwest China, the Durbet and the Torgut headed westward in search of proverbial greener pastures. Thus, they opted to settle in the region of the lower Volga River and what was then the Tsardom of Russia, the precursor to the Russian Empire. Ironically enough, this region was no stranger to foreign invasion and influence. It had, in the 15th and 16th centuries, formed a part of the Astrakhan Khanate, a Tatar, and therefore Turkic-led state, that arose in the power vacuum left by the Golden Horde, itself an offshoot of the Mongol Empire. At the time, the east and west banks of the lower Volga were only sparsely populated, and the Tsardom was in no political position to colonize the area. Unable to defend the region, the Oidats moved in, establishing their own khanate known as the Kalmyk Khanate, Kalmyk coming from a Turkic word meaning remnant, a reference to the Mongols quote-unquote left behind by the Mongol Empire. Allying themselves with Russia, they signed a treaty in which they agreed to protect and defend the Tsardom's southern border from the various Turkic hordes that were sweeping across the Central Asian steppe in those days. In the beginning, ties between the Russians and the Kalmyks were troubled. As raiding and marauding had been a part of their lifestyle for several centuries, the Kalmyks often pillaged Russian settlements in and around the lower Volga in their early days within the Tsardom's jurisdiction. While the Russians drafted several treaties and agreements to reduce Kalmyk sovereignty in the region, they nevertheless maintained their autonomy. 
but they'd soon prove of use to the Russians. Noting the comics's military might and fighting prowess, especially on horseback, the Tsardom was quick to employ them to protect the southern border from the threat of invasion from such Muslim powers as Safavid Iran, the Ottoman Empire, the Tatars, and the Khanate of Crimea, among others. What ensued was the Kalmyk Khanate acting as a sort of buffer zone between Russian Christendom and the Islamic sovereignties to the south. With these foreign powers at bay, the Tsardom granted the Kalmyks tariff-free access to southern border towns in order to trade their goods, usually livestock, for Russian products. In this way, they came to dominate the market, acting as middlemen between the Russians and their Muslim neighbors to the south. What ensued was a thriving commercial culture along the country's southern border that helped bolster the Tsardom's economy. All the while, the Kalmyks maintained their independence as a sovereign state within Russia, with their own leader, known perhaps not surprisingly as a Khan, as well as their own cultural identity. But alas, their autonomy wasn't to last. Throughout the 18th century, internal fighting amongst the Kalmyks led to a greatly weakened state. With the death of their Khan Ayuka in 1724, several candidates, quote-unquote, vied for control over the Khanate. Seeing this as an opportunity to subjugate them, the Tsardom swept in and allowed Russian, German, as well as other European settlers to gradually inhabit the former grazing lands of the Kalmyks' livestock. As if that weren't enough, Russia imposed a council on the Khan, further restricting his power. This was followed soon after by the dispatching of local Eastern Orthodox priests to convert as many Kalmyks as possible to Christianity. Some made the conversion, while others refused, opting instead to adhere to the Tibetan Buddhism that they and their ancestors had practiced for generations. Realizing what was happening, the last Khan, Ubashi, the great-grandson of Ayuka, decided to relocate his people back to a region of their ancestral homeland in the Tsungaria region of northwestern China. But as war between Russia and the Ottoman Empire was raging, Tsarina Catherine the Great ordered the halting of all migrants within Russia's borders. This policy single-handedly led to the deaths of some 85,000 Kalmyks from starvation, thirst, and raids by the Kazakhs, a Turkic people, who at the time were Russian subjects, on the way to Tsungaria. After a grueling journey of some seven months, a mere one-third of the original Kalmyk exodus had reached the western border of Qing Dynasty China. The Chinese, not quick to forget their having been subjects under the Mongol Empire, didn't merely subjugate these refugees, but forced them into a sedentary lifestyle after having been traditionally nomadic throughout their existence. Thus these Kalmyks became farmers and agriculturalists, and, to add salt to the wounds they'd already sustained, had their culture and language greatly suppressed by the Qing government. But what of those Kalmyks who'd stayed behind in Russia? Ironically, at the time, they had the long end of the proverbial stick, comparatively speaking. Despite such restrictive measures to end their autonomy, they were allowed to continue their nomadic pastoralist lifestyle, wandering the green pasturelands between the Don and Volga rivers. However, having heard of the disastrous undertaking to Zungaria on behalf of their brethren, the remaining Kalmyks often aligned themselves with other nomadic tribes, namely of Turkic and Slavic stock, of the area, in the hopes of regaining their complete autonomy. They participated, for example, in the failed rebellion of 1773 to 1775, led by one Yemelyan Pugachev, himself a Cossack, a Slavic tribe. With the revolt having been completely quelled by Russian forces, Tsarina Catherine the Great appointed a Kalmyk loyal to her empire as vice Khan, allowing her to maintain control over them. Later on, she created a position known as the Guardian of the Kalmyk People, though said representative was, of course, a Russian, to further keep these Mongolic nomads in check. They were also split into three administrative regions within the empire, while the rest were sent to Siberia, the latter being a death sentence in those days. Over time, their nomadic lifestyle was replaced by a sedentary one. They built permanent structures such as houses and edifices in favor of the traditional yurt, and in 1865, what would one day become the capital of the region of Kalmykia, Elista, was established. 
Despite such treatment in the early days of the Russian Empire, by the time the October Revolution came around in 1917, most comics aligned themselves with the Imperial or White Army. This was because they felt that their culture and traditions would fare better under the old order, as the communists who were emerging wanted to unite everyone under a socialist banner, which demanded total conformity in favor of individuality and autonomy. Naturally, there were those who sided with the Bolshevik Red Army, noting the historical Russification of both the comics and their lands. In short, they were caught between a rock and a hard place, for even some of their traditional practices, their allegiance to their tribal leaders, and their staunch Buddhist beliefs, to name a couple of examples, went against communist doctrine. As it did with the rest of the country, the October Revolution greatly polarized and pitted the comics against one another, and it wasn't long before their homeland was captured by the Red Army. But those who felt that the Bolsheviks would be the lesser of two evils were in for a rude awakening. No sooner had the communists seized Astrakhan did they enact savage reprisals against the Kalmyks, specifically Buddhist religious institutions and the clergy. To add salt to the wounds, they even drafted some 18,000 Kalmyk cavalrymen into their cause, though most ended up defecting back to the White Army. By 1920, with the communists having gained control of the country, most white army comics had fled to Czechoslovakia, Bulgaria, or France so as to avoid extradition to Russia and face imprisonment and execution for quote-unquote treason. Those comic leaders who'd fought alongside the imperialists were ultimately brought back to Russia and summarily shot by the new regime. However, in the reorganization of the nation, the Soviets established the Kalmyk Autonomous Oblast, better known as Kalmykia, in November that same year, with its capital and administrative center at Elista. Fifteen years later, in 1935, the oblast would be renamed the Kalmyk Autonomous Soviet Socialist Republic. Its primary occupations were cattle breeding and grazing and agriculture, specifically the raising of cotton and fishing. There was no industry. Despite such seemingly positive developments, life under the Soviets proved to be no better than it had been in the Tsardom and Imperial days. In fact, in many ways, it was worse. As early as 1922, a famine claimed the lives of between 71 and 72,000 Kalmyks. Food under this new order was scarce among the populace as it was, but the famine proved to be a tipping point for this ethnic enclave. They rebelled four years later, and a sizable portion of the population, some 20,000 Kalmyks to be precise, were sent to Karelia in the north, or even worse, Siberia in the east, where they were forced to work on state-run farms or else perform slave labor in gulags as punishment. Then, in 1929, then-Premier Joseph Stalin forced the Kalmyks to abandon their nomadic pastoralist way of life in favor of assimilating into sedentary village life. Those owning more than 500 sheep were also sent to labor camps in Siberia. The charge? Simply possessing livestock, which by right and definition, quote, belonged to the state, unquote. But of all the absurd and dastardly policies enacted on Kalmykia by the Soviet regime, perhaps the most heinous took place during World War II. In June of 1941, the Nazis invaded Russia, assuming some control over the Kalmykia Autonomous Soviet Socialist Republic in the process. A year and a half later, in December of 1942, the Russians took control of Kalmykia back from the Nazis. Just as much victims as any other Russian citizens had been at the hands of the invading Germans, the Kalmyks were ultimately accused of collaborating with the enemy by the Soviet government a year later. The resulting decision to uproot the entire community to Siberia was unanimous, and for the next 13 years, they'd reside in virtual isolation from the rest of the country. 
It wasn't until Nikita Khrushchev assumed command of the Soviet Union in February of 1956 that the comics were allowed to return to their steppe homeland between the Volga River and the Caspian Sea. While they were indeed happy to be home, their disillusionment with and mistrust in the government was great, but understandable. Feeling like strangers within their own country, many of them sought refuge elsewhere, far away from Russia, the Soviets, and communism. Many immigrated to Germany and the United States, both countries of which have sizable comic communities to this day, especially in Munich. Berlin, Pennsylvania, and New Jersey, respectively. As for those who stayed behind, they eventually were able to retain their culture, customs, and religious practices, albeit towards the end of the Soviet Union. Perhaps in an effort to right some of the wrongs imposed on them, the Russian Postal Service issued a stamp honoring comic heritage in 1991, just months before communism fell. Finally, in 2005, the Burkhan Bakshin Altansume, better known in English as the Golden Temple of Buddha Shakyamuni, opened in Elista on the site of an old factory, and in the years since has become the spiritual and cultural center of the region. No visit to Elista or Kalmykia in general is complete without paying a visit to this beautiful religious site, as it's truly a testament to the adversity the comics have faced throughout the years. A proud heritage, unbridled persecution, exile, and a hopeful future, the comics have seen empires rise and fall, regimes change, and yet through it all, their cultural heritage has remained virtually unscathed, despite great attempts at curbing it in the name of Russification, and later communism. As with any persecuted people, they've stubbornly clung to their identity, an act that has done wonders for their survival. Today, Kalmykia shows signs of wear and tear, with many remnants from the Soviet era still standing. Despite this, a renewed vitality hangs about the place. There's an energy there that perhaps has never been seen before, or at least hasn't been present in quite some time. That's because the comics have learned to be tenacious and resilient. Indeed, it's these two attributes that are the primary reason why they and their land have endured. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode about an oft-overlooked and misunderstood people. The comics are truly a unique people and a symbol of endurance in the face of great adversity. If you like what you heard this week and would like to support this podcast to ensure continued content, please consider becoming a supporter. Just go to anchor.fm slash historylovescompany and click the support button, which will redirect you to three monthly support plans that fit your budget or monetary situation. Listening and sharing also help in big ways, so please do so wherever you listen to your podcasts. Join me again next week for a look at an ancient pre-Greek culture on the Cyclades Islands in the Aegean Sea, only on the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. This is Chester Sakamoto signing off. See you next time.